October 1st, 1969, when I first smuggled several hundred pages of top-secret documents out of my safe at the Rand Corporation. The study contained 47 volumes, 7,000 pages. My plan was to Xerox the study and reveal the secret history of the Vietnam War to the American people. The FBI was trying to find out who gave the New York Times a copy of the Pentagon's secret study. How, like a, like a thunderclap, you get the New York Times publishing the Pentagon Papers, and the country is panicking. This is an attack on the whole integrity of government. If whole file cabinets can be stolen and then made available to the press, you can't have orderly government anymore. A name has now come out as the possible source of the Times Pentagon documents. It is that of Daniel Ellsberg, the top policy analyst for the Defense and State Department. I think it is time in this country to quit making national heroes out of those who steal secrets and publish them in the newspaper. Welcome to the Whistleblower Newsroom. I'm Christina Borgeson. What you heard was a clip from a documentary titled The Most Dangerous Man in America, written, produced, and directed by Judith Ehrlich and Rick Goldsmith for BBC Four. It's about former Pentagon analyst and preeminent American whistleblower, Daniel Ellsberg, who by releasing a report known as the Pentagon Papers to the press almost 50 years ago, exposed illegal and deadly U.S. involvement in Vietnam spanning five presidencies and culminating in a war begun on false premises and resulting in the deaths of more than 2 million Vietnamese and 58,000 Americans. Ellsberg was charged under the Espionage Act for unauthorized possession and theft of the papers and facing 115 years of jail time was eventually released, not because he was acquitted, but because a mistrial was declared after the Nixon administration's illegal uh, efforts to find uh, information that would smear and discredit Ellsberg came to light. Now Ellsberg is front and center in helping and supporting a current preeminent whistleblower, Julian Assange, most recently, Mr. Ellsberg uh, testified in, in Assange's at Assange's extradition hearing in the UK. So today we're going to talk about the differences and similarities between their two cases and what that might mean for Assange, what it means for the press, what it means for our country, our constitution, and the world. Welcome, Dan. Very glad to be here, Christina. Thank you. So, Let's just dive right in and talk about the similarities and differences between your situation back then and Assange's now. It was in the very last days, a couple of weeks ago now, of uh, Julian Assange's extradition hearing or trial in London, that there came to be sworn testimony that he'd been subject to the same kinds of crimes uh, by the CIA and almost surely by the White House, directed by the White House, that had been revealed at the very end of my trial. Now, in that case, uh, eventually, after two weeks of uh, daily revelations of these crimes, the judge finally uh, declared a mistrial and uh, dropped the charges against me and my co-defendant, Tony Russo. Uh, much more significantly than that, uh, those crimes by the administration figured uh, very centrally in the 
impeachment hearings against President Nixon that led to his resignation. And that made the war endable some nine months later, which wouldn't have happened had Nixon remained in office. Now, <clears throat> that's not likely, that chain of events uh, so directly is not likely to happen in the Assange case, although uh, what's been revealed here are very clearly high crimes and misdemeanors, They're just plain crimes, uh, illegal uh, warrantless surveillance of uh, Julian Assange in his Ecuadorian uh, exile uh, confinement, basically, in the embassy in London, including the deliberate and, uh, well, deliberate hearing of every conversation he had with his lawyers in there. And almost surely, by the way, anything by telephone as well. But very strikingly, uh, every aspect of his interactions with his lawyers in the small room or two that he had in the Ecuadorian embassy, including, by the way, very deliberately, the ladies' bathroom, where he retired a couple times with his lawyers to try to evade uh, surveillance in that, and where they had thoughtfully uh, put listening devices on the bottom of the fire extinguisher and in the uh, plug in the wall. So they had everything of his lawyer's, uh, of his lawyer's uh, dialogue with him every aspect of their strategy, uh, their defense, and so forth, that would surely, even I would say in the Trump administration, it's hard to imagine even Attorney General Barr uh, pretending that a, a fair trial or uh, under rule of law here was possible in the United States under those conditions. Uh, and as far as an extradition is concerned, it seems unimaginable that the... Uh, <laughs> Unfortunately, what is unimaginable these days? But it certainly should not be the case that Britain should uh, ship over an Australian citizen and yeah, citizen to the United States to face charges, which, by the way, are almost certainly unconstitutional charges in the United States uh, in any case. But under these circumstances, where his uh, not only has the inviolability of his discussions with his defense attorneys been totally violated deliberately? But the uh, the lawlessness of that portends, you know, a, a lawless trial and, and persecution in every sense. So that should end uh, the proceedings. I would say uh, the judge is about to hear, or at some point is going to hear the final arguments of the two sides. Uh, and then uh, delay a judgment on extradition until January. That means that uh, Julian Assange is kept in this maximum security prison for terrorists uh, in isolation, which under the circumstances is not so bad for the COVID-19 problem, which is rampant in the prison. In other words, he's in terrible physical shape and has been for a long time now, uh, deprived of, of proper medical attention. Uh, hundreds, it, it sounds like hyperbole, but it isn't. Hundreds of doctors have said, and lawyers have said that he should be at the very least remanded to hospital conditions uh, before this and should have been uh, out of uh, prison. And yet he is staying in for at least several months uh, under these conditions, after which he should be released uh, by me. And, and that was a prospect that really wasn't foreseeable until this information came out. I didn't say, however, that along with the same testimony of the people who had conducted this illegal surveillance, 
for uh, for the CIA essentially, and <clears throat> also testified there was discussions with the CIA of kidnapping him uh, against diplomatic uh, protocol from the embassy, or perhaps poisoning. Now that wow. that again was exactly like my case. It turned out, or at the time of the ending of my trial, that the people who were later discovered in the Watergate weeks later. The same people had been sent to the Capitol where I was attending a rally in a break in my trial uh, against the Vietnam War with orders to incapacitate me, Daniel Ellsberg, totally. And when I asked the prosecutor, William Merrill, what does that mean? Kill me? And he said, the orders were to incapacitate you totally. Wow. Understand, he said, these guys, all CIA assets, never use the word kill. They use euphemisms to uh, terminate with extreme prejudice. Right, right. To neutralize, uh, you know, to do very, to eliminate, to do various things. And in this case, there was, and he thought the intent was to kill me. I'm not sure of that. There was no question, though, the intent was to put me in the hospital and shut me up while Nixon escalated the war, which I'd been warning of for some time before that, and right at that time. They wanted me to shut up. So I think uh, uh, they plan to shut me up. Now, my, my question here, first of all, before I ask this question, could you talk to me about your testimony before uh, the, hear the hearing? What, what, what did you say? Yes, well, of course, I didn't know about this during the hearing. Uh, I was already, uh, this latter part, as I say, made me relive the last days of my trial, which in terms of revelations and in the Assange trial uh, were glorious in a way. You know, they, they really uh, showed the, the possibility of uh, my getting off, which by law I was virtually entitled to under our constitution. But under practice, since the judge had been offered the head of the FBI, which he had yes. won, uh, since he was a boy to succeed J. Edgar Hoover, who had just died. He was uh, offered that as a bribe to, to uh, make sure you got... That I was not acquitted of 12. Right, right. I think, in fact, in other words, without these revelations, it would have been almost sure that the judge would have assured that I would be convicted on one or two or three of those counts at least, each one worth 10 years, by the way. So... As I say, in the Assange trial, too, suddenly it appeared really possible that Assange can be set free. But uh, earlier than that is what I was testifying to. And that was uh, where I was reliving a trial where um, actually the charges against me of uh, had never been uh, prosecuted before for someone for leaking information, true information, to the American public. Uh, there was no law for that, unlike in Britain, where there is an Official Secrets Act. We don't have an Official Secrets Act because we have a First Amendment, which had always, has still been held to preclude a British-type Official Secrets Act, which criminalizes all release, uh, unauthorized release, of classified information. We don't have that. We have an Espionage Act, which was passed, of course, to deal with spies, people who give information secretly to a foreign government, especially an enemy in wartime, and had been used very many times against spies and has been used since against spies, for which it was intended. And in that 
context. It's a strict liability law, which means no intention, no discussion of intent or motivation or impact, possible benefit of this release is uh, admitted. It's irrelevant. Uh, spies don't have much of a case there, you know, that they can they can claim uh, mitigating their giving secrets to an enemy in wartime, see. But uh, for people who give information with the intention of helping the United States, you know, benefiting it, uh, upholding its constitution, as in the case of Edward Snowden, for example, or stopping an illegal war, uh, as in my case, um, yes, the jury deserves to hear, must hear, what you, why you did it, uh, whether there was a risk of harm or benefit, and what the actual impact was. None of that was permitted in my trial as I testified uh, in this, and meaning that he, there was no way for him to get a fair trial in the United States. And really up to that time, as I heard all the testimony, I was kind of reliving what had been a very painful experience in my life of uh, facing. Uh, you know, I find this whole espionage acting very interesting, and as well as the reactions of a certain people, um, you know, in the press and so on, because I, it seems to me that there, a, there's a confluence of competing interests, which are, you know, the, the national security, uh, that's what they're claiming, you know, the, the, their national and security interests here. And, but yet on the other side, besides the constant, you know, your constitutional right to free speech, I don't understand why nobody ever says, well, what if you're reporting a crime? What if you're reporting a huge crime? Well, yeah, I mean, what you have, what you reported through releasing that, 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 uh, the Pentagon Papers was a RICO case, really. <laughs> I mean, <laughs> that is true. That's a good description of it, which I hadn't uh, heard, applied before. You're absolutely right. There is this difference. The, um, the information that Chelsea Manning uh, revealed to Julian Assange, for which he is being tried now for distributing it as a publisher, uh, did reveal field-level war crimes, torture, assassination in the field that are clearly not just illegal, clearly criminal at every level, international law, domestic law, U.S. domestic law, and uh, the Constitution. They, they couldn't be more illegal. And they were, uh, Chelsea and Julian were revealing these. The answer to your question is, what if the information held classified uh, reveals a crime and otherwise wouldn't be known? The answer is, according to the Justice Department, very clear-cut. Makes no difference. It's classified, even though it's classified in order to conceal a crime. You, you can't have a democracy under those conditions. That's true. You can't, absolutely. You, look, and, I was brought up in Haiti under Papa Doc, okay? Really? Yes, and, and my, my uh, father was a military attache there, and you know what that means. So, um, you know, <laughs> I know uh, what it's like to to be reared in a country as a member of well, they used to of, of what they call the morally repugnant elite, and and the uh, license that you have uh, as an American official, uh, American government official in these countries, it's it's just 
you know, it's amazing. And so people cannot, I don't understand why people don't pay attention to what you exposed as opposed to that you exposed it. And I think you, in the documentary, you discussed how you were concerned about people were not paying attention to the content of what you were. No, well, I'm very, can I take off just from what you just told me? Because I have to say, I haven't, uh, I, I visited Haiti once, of course met people there, but aside from that, I don't recall meeting anyone who grew up in Haiti. I'd love to talk to you about it. <laughs> But I can ask, uh, have you written about it, written a book or an essay or anything? About, no, no. The first book I ever published was Into the Buzzsaw, Leading Journalists Expose the Myth of a Free Press, which is a series, it's a, it's a series of um, essays written by investigative reporters uh, writing about their running into the limits of, of the freedom of the press, running into censorship and what happened to them. Well, uh, the reason I asked... I'll that... send you a copy, Dan. Thank you. <laughs> no, I haven't written about. Here's here's what I, I want to draw this right to the present here. Um, the growing up as you did in a country like that, we're faced right now in the next three weeks, I think, between the choice of maintaining the democracy we have, which is flawed, very far from perfect, but pretty far from fascist, a fascist state, or a Papa Doc state uh, in Haiti yet, right now. And yet, we have a would-be fascist in the White House, I believe. A wannabe Mussolini. I don't suppose he's modeled himself on Papa Doc particularly. But take the people who uh, were prepared, and he was unwilling to really denounce them, to kidnap the Michigan uh, governor recently. Whitmer. Yeah possibly assassinate her. That's another one, you know, kidnap. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Or uh, incapacitate her, right? And other people as well occupy the state government. How far is that from the Tonton Makut in... Uh, well, in but listen, Dan, when I came to the United States and I went to Columbia J School, I thought, wow, this is it, you know, this is amazing. I'm in the, I'm, I'm a member of the freest press in the world and this and that. And literally, almost literally three years into my tenure at, uh, at CBS, basically, my career blew up because I was asking questions I shouldn't ask while being told to investigate an airline crash. So, my view of what's going on. Can you just he, a little bit? What airline crash? Were you the, the flight TWA flight 800. Over the coast outside. Yes. The, yes. By a missile or not? Is that what? Well, you're... you know, I mean, the the I can send you the documentary. It took me 17 years to make, and you know, I've been blackballed three times by networks for twice for that story and once for um, another oh. story. Okay. So. I find what you have here, see in, in countries like Haiti, the, the dictatorship is very frontal, okay? It's just like, we're gonna shoot you if you do this. Or if you're a member of the Republican, of the uh, morally repugnant elite, you have your code blanche. And if you kill somebody in the street, you show the code blanche and you know, things are good for you. So what I see here in the United States is a very sophisticated system of control and suppression. 
um, in the press and um, particularly, I, I mean, I was shocked. I was shocked uh, when I came to this country and to see, I mean, there's certain iron portfolio, third rail issues that you just cannot report on in this country in certain ways or. Look, when the question of, you know, I was revealing what you called, you said Rico, a genuinely a conspiracy to yes. against uh, Vietnam by throughout the government, essentially very well kept secret, uh, actually. Uh, the reporting in this country on that uh, was terrible. Didn't prepare the country at all. Used ha government handouts. And that was reproduced in Iraq. Uh, the, we were lied into the war in Iraq, which was a clear-cut crime of aggression, much clearer than Vietnam, by the way, because Vietnam, they had a murky situation where we were supposedly asked in by a government that was secretly under our total control. It was a puppet government that we'd created. But we could say it wasn't as clear-cut aggression as Iraq was. And, you know, when asked, here's what I'm getting to, when asked later, uh, how Dan Rather of CBS, uh, I'm going to say, was a generally a quite relatively courageous uh, journalist, reporter, had not questioned uh, the government. In fact, had said things like, when it comes to war, you know, I'm at your command, essentially. Right. Astray well, those weren't the exact words, but well, very, close, very close to that. And when later he asked, is that your role? Uh, how, how could you have said something like that? Uh, and he said... To be charged as unpatriotic in this country is like having a burning tire around your neck. Right. Goes right to Haiti, right? Where the, uh, the tires... Well, let me tell you something, though, okay? Mm -hmm. I, I actually produced for Dan at CBS, mm -hmm. okay? And um, <clears throat> we won an Emmy for investigative reporting together. Uh, we were nominated for another one the following year. So, you know, it was all good until I was assigned to look into this crash and um, got into trouble there. I'll send you my documentary. But anyway, um, Dan, getting to the run-up to the Iraq War, Dan hired me to do a show uh, about the run-up to the war in Iraq. It was based on a book that I did, which was a, a series of interviews that I did with top reporters, national security reporters, people like Helen Thomas, big, big uh, network uh, news one. executives, etc. cetera. Oh. And basically, yeah. I'm sorry, go ahead. She was one of the real skeptics about the war, was she not? If I'm not Helen. Yes, yes, yes. And anyway, talking about um, what went on during the run up to the war, which basically those who there were those who were pressured and there were those who were you know, they do what's called official source reporting. You have to understand, Dan, you, your importance as a news person uh, depends on your uh, access to the top people. Your access to the top people depends on you not questioning what they do, what they say, and reporting just what they want you to report. And if you're a real reporter, you're not going to do that. So, Anyway, this is one of the things I learned um, as a member of the American press. But um, Dan hired me to do a show. It was going to be called The Cabal. Okay. And um, it was looking at who did what during the run up to the war. And I had people like Larry Wilkerson, 
CIA's Paul Pillar. I had all the people who were directly involved, Colonel Karen Kwiatkowski, directly involved. And it was called the Cabal because that's what Doug Fife and his little group in the Pentagon who were going through the raw intelligence and stovepiping it up to the vice president's office, you know, so that they could lie about what, you know, they had. Anyway, a lot of the people, including Karen, Dan had never even heard of. And when this story started, um, you know, and, and so as we were doing all these interviews, everything was great. And then um, toward, at the end, I got to, I was starting to edit the piece and uh, Larry Wilkerson had said, you remember, remember um, Colin Powell's speech to the UN? Which he okay, that speech was drafted in the vice president's office, okay, by a guy named John Hanna and also Scooter Libby. John mm -hmm. Hanna came down to Colonel Wilkerson's office. This is Colonel Wilkerson telling me this came down to his office and, and to vet the speech. And after eight hours, they couldn't vet the first page. So now everybody was freaking out because this thing was gonna happen in a couple of weeks. So all of a sudden like that, um, CIA uh, Tenet, George Tenet pulls out Curveball, this uh, source who gave false information about the, and that's what they used to comfort Larry Wilkerson and and uh, Powell into putting Powell's credibility on the line and giving that bogus speech. Okay, so what happened to me while I was doing that show, just to give you an example, was I called the vice president's office to talk to John Hanna to confirm what Larry Wilkerson had said. I lost my job shortly thereafter, and I was asked. Who the hell did I think I was calling the vice president's office like that? Okay. I mean, I wasn't calling to talk to Cheney. I was calling to talk to John Hanna. But, you know, somebody made a call somewhere and that was it. The show was killed. I tried to buy it from them, you know, because I'd done all, they wouldn't let me. So it's, and you know what? I want to talk about the press in your case because the press was very different back then. Um, I just want to talk about the press's response to your giving them the papers compared to the press right now with Julian Assange. Could you play the second clip, please, Jess? I walked into this hotel room when he and I hold up and Neil says, Rick, look at what we've got. And I mean, it was just staggering. The raw top secret, eyes only documents. From Earl Wheeler to General Westmoreland, from Johnson to Taylor. You could go back and see, yes, Kennedy did send in uh, troops in violation of the Geneva Accord. Yes, Johnson did start the buildup before he said he was going to. I remember writing this story. These guys were lying through their teeth when they were talking to us. And here it is in black and white. There's no way of denying it. So, Look how like, oh my God, this is amazing. <clears throat> we really, uh, you know, this was exciting, this and that. And of course, uh, the lawyers had to get involved. And even the New York Times lawyer took a stand, which again, I wanna play this clip too before we, we talk about it. Could you play the next, the next clip, please, Jess? What in God's name have we been fighting for in this country? 
for two or three hundred years uh, to have the right to speak and the right to publish, the right to think against a threat by the government. So I was so struck by those, you know, I was really struck by those um, because it seems like the press's response to Julian is very different and, and the WikiLeaks uh, submission. I, I, you know, the WikiLeaks uh, releasing of the documents about the Afghanistan and Iraq wars, et cetera. Look, the, uh, Julian was somewhat shocked having worked with New York Times and Le Monde and The Observer on releasing these documents, uh, <clears throat> you know, what to release, how to deal with it, how to redact, where actually his concern at the time, as was testified, for redacting the names of possible informants was much greater than that of the observer. They said, we've got to go ahead, we've got to go ahead. They testified Julian was asking for more time to do it and so forth. That's what he's being charged with in part, not uh, showing any concern, which was the opposite of the truth. But. Um, in, but the New York Times then published a, a long story about him, uh, the first big profile they did of Julian Assange, where they described uh, how scruffy he was. Remember, this is a this is a computer guy who works at night mainly, you know, in a little room over a computer. Uh, how bad his clothes were, like a bag lady, uh, and that he smelled bad because he didn't shower enough when he was doing this work and so forth. Oh, God. It, it couldn't have been a more defamatory kind of stuff. He, he was a little shell-shocked, you know, how could the Times be doing this to me? By the way, they did exactly the same to Chelsea Manning, presenting her falsely in the most uh, slanderous way, basically. I, give, I could give examples of that. I said, Julian, I would have told you this is how they're going to treat you because that's the way they regarded me. I uh, went, went through all this. All I can infer is that newsmen regard their sources like snitches, like a policeman regards his informants on whom he depends. I'm talking now not about the officials, the piece, chief of police who gives him, you know, self-serving uh, little leaks of various kind, or the case of Kissinger or something. No, the low-level people who have one secret to tell you, you're not, they're not, you're not going to go back to them and rely on them as a source. And after all. They aren't breaking their promise to keep secrets. Are they really respectable? I'm doing my job as a journalist, but this person is violating the promise he or she made to keep those secrets, as indeed I was. I think they don't respect them particularly, and they certainly don't regard them as part of the news process, as part of the journalistic process. For uh, they didn't give me a break in this thing, and one thing that used to get under my skin a little was that for about 20 years, when my name ever came up, uh, because I'd gotten arrested or I'd given a speech or something. Uh, I would be identified as Daniel Ellsberg, the man who claims that he gave the, press, the, the Pentagon Papers to the newspapers. And so people would call me and say, what's this? What are they saying? And uh, so several times, I called, three times altogether, I called two different uh, editors of the Times and said, could you change that uh, little slug, you know, could you change that description. They said, well, we don't reveal our sources. I said, <laughs> I was on trial for this. <laughs> so, are you saying, Jesse, that I wasn't, you know, that I just claimed uh, this statement? Well, I think after about 30 years, 50 years ago, after about 30 years, somehow it, it came to be the man who gave the you know, Pentagon Papers. Somehow it changed. 
The Washington Post never did change on that particularly. You never. Well, Dan, <laughs> I mean, if if a if a irritating <laughs> if a reporter wants to uh, wants to lie, okay, in their report, might I, for example, direct you to Judith Miller and her pre run up to the war reporting, yeah. where you always talk about some anonymous official source. Yeah. And whenever anybody who sees, you know, this is, this is, uh, you know, uh, citizen, citizen uh, critical thinking when reading a report, if you see a press report that uh, cites a bunch of anonymous sources, don't believe anything you're reading because if you can't cite a real source that you can go to, then, you know, you you are now leaving yourself open to a lot of skepticism. Could I could I uh, take issue with that a little bit though, please? Because yes, when it's Henry Kissinger giving a background briefing, which means you can't identify the source, right? I used to say uh, press conferences are channels for officials to lie to the public. Yes. Reporters <laughs> are channels for officials to lie to reporters. And if the unnamed official source is clearly giving the government line, you know, and, and serving a particular bureau or a agency service or whatever, yes, of course, to be very skeptical of that. But really, if you want to be a whistleblower and you don't want to be on trial for 115 years, as I was, or Snowden, if you don't want to be exiled for life, Chelsea Manning, you don't want to be, they all reveal themselves. But if you, uh, if you don't want to be like Chelsea in prison for seven and a half years, then you have to be anonymous. Uh, and all three of well, us... Well, yes, but if you're going to be anonymous, you have to provide the goods, which you guys did. Yeah, documents. Okay. Yeah. Judith never provided any goods. She never had any documentation or any other sources with names that were backing this up or, you know... So th that's what I mean. I mean, yeah, you can be an anonymous source, but you got to be, you got to bring something to the table. You know? Well, and remember, yeah, okay. So uh, anyway, the, the overall performance of the Times on the Iraq War uh, was, you know, leading up to it, was just terrible. Judith Miller and others, uh, Gordon, I think his name was, uh, several others were, uh, were very bad on this. They didn't suffer any consequences, as she did to some extent. People like Walter Pincus and others who questioned the war found their reports literally on page 17. Uh, and it just wasn't the line for people to be... Yeah. So it was a very, very bad performance. But in general, by the way, I'm so interested in the, in the uh, particular study you made. I know Larry Wilkerson, very, very good guy, who has always said he was ashamed and regretted that he had not resigned and he had a letter of resignation before the war because of these dealings with the CIA and the others that he was involved in. He had a letter of resignation in his desk and he said almost every morning he would take that letter out and look at it and then put it back. And uh, he shouldn't have done that, but it was very human. Uh, no one else did better. No one, not one. Had there been a Chelsea or an Ed Snowden uh, at high levels, like Larry, or even Larry's secretary, let's say, who had access to his safe and whatnot. Had there been somebody there, 
we could have avoided that war because it was so much based on delusional predictions and lies uh, to and all the way around at every point. I think that war could have been avoided had a whistleblower spoken out, but not one did in time. Now, you, uh, and that's why I would say right now, uh, I think we're in a situation in the, in the next weeks, in a month or two, where it could very well serve a president to uh, distract the public from a political campaign that he is losing at this moment by getting us into a war with Iran. Yeah. North Korea, conceivably less less likely in his case. Well, it's it's a terrifying thought, but I'll 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 tell you what. I mean, I think we have a big problem, and I think the big problem is the press because if anybody and and what's happened is <laughs> Congress, the press, well, and Congress as well. But what's happened is everybody is bought off. Everybody's bought off, Dan, and and as a matter of fact, that's why. That, well, I was going to ask you: Is your is the is the draft? I mean, the the script of your program, the cabal. The cabal is that? Oh, I can send that to you. Can you please do that. Then I would. You like know, to I um. Oh my God, I I um, I copyrighted the script when I let when they when they let me go. Very good then. Because uh, I had not. They did not. Uh, they I, they didn't make me sign anything when I first started working for them. So I, I have to tell you, people like Dan, my experience with Dan is, and Dan's a very smart guy. He has a lot of sort of that native intelligence too, you know? But um, he, Dan, he works both sides, I think very skillfully because he'll do what he had to do during the time when he should have stood up. And, uh, and then after that, he'll say, oh, I feel terrible. I feel ashamed. I this and mea culpa, mea culpa. Well, my, my attitude is, I'm sorry, you know, the boat of greatness stopped <laughs> at a very important time when you could have gotten on it and said, you know what, this is all being done on, on false pretenses. You could have ridden that boat of greatness, but you chose not to. You chose to keep your comfy situation and your, you know, zillions of dollars. That's what nearly everyone does. I mean, you were fired for it, but how many, you know, how many other people in your profession knew what you knew and didn't do anything? Well, about? but, but you see, Dan, I mean, the, here's the thing is, is as they're watching, I mean, in a way, What's happening now with Assange and with, you know, the Mack truck they don't see coming that's going to roll them or because what comes for Assange will eventually come for every reporter in this country, you know, and they they don't see that they don't want to recognize that they want to separate themselves from this pariah, you know, and and. Right. Why? Why did why did we have the Iraq war on false pretenses? We had the, the Vietnam war on false pretenses, all these because. If people don't step in and take their responsibility for contributing and upholding a democracy by doing their jobs as journalists or by doing their jobs as government, uh, as public servants who see a wrong and try and right it, what happens? It gets worse and worse. People get emboldened. The leadership gets emboldened. And then they pass law, you know, then they take laws like the Espionage Act, which was meant for something else, and they massage it and pull it and twist it, and, this, and they wrap it around anybody 
who's who's going to expose their criminal activity. That's where we are right now. And, you know, I want to play something. I want to play a couple of clips to give people a sense of how thuggish it really gets in the halls of power when they're trying to go after people like you. Could you could you play the next clip for for me, please? I think it's. Um... Daniel Ellsberg, whatever his intentions, gave aid and comfort to the enemy. And under those circumstances, that is inexcusable. After all, he is putting himself above uh, the president of the United States, above the Congress, above our whole system of government. Uh, when he says, in effect, that he would determine uh, what should be made public. I think that there is probably some good justification for the strong feelings Nixon had. He would make a decision in the National Security Council and the next day read it on the front page of the New York Times or some other newspaper. This makes it virtually impossible to govern. It, just because some guy's going to be a martyr, we can't be in a position... Uh, of allowing the fellow to get away with this kind of wholesale thievery or otherwise it's going to happen all over the government. I just say that we've got to keep our eye on the main ball. The main ball is Ellsberg. we got to get this son of a bitch. <laughs> By uh, impossible to govern, what he means is... Are you there? Yes. Uh, what he means is, of course, that with some validity... It's hard to carry on an illegal war based on it's killing enormous numbers of people, including American troops, but 10 to 1 Vietnamese, based on lies and treachery, lying to the government. It's hard to do that if someone will tell the truth. And that's true. I hoped it was hard to do it. And yet, it was possible. The Pentagon Papers came out in 71. The war went on for four more years. And the next year, while I was still on trial, was the biggest year of violence of the war. So had it not been, I would say the Pentagon Papers did not modify the um, actual prosecution of the war at all at the time. The crimes he took against me, Nixon, after I was un, uh, indicted, in order to keep me from telling about his crimes, because the Pentagon Papers ended in 68 before Nixon came into power, but what his worry was that I would talk about what I knew, and he feared I had documents. I didn't actually. It was reasonable of him to fear it because I had friends in the government who did have those documents in the White House. I didn't know that at the time. They resigned, but they resigned without putting out the documents. And as one of them, Roger Morris, said to me later, Dan, it was the greatest shame and regret of my life. He was like in the position of Larry Wilkerson, in effect. And he said, we should have thrown open the safes and screamed bloody murder because that's exactly what it was. Well, you know what? Again, I guess I guess I've seen too much of it. Shoulda, woulda, coulda, you know, because I'll tell you, there's some chilling moments in that documentary where, speaking of thugs, Nixon's saying to Kissinger, well, you know, what about those dikes? You know, we'll bomb those dikes and uh, how many people will die, Henry? And he goes uh, to about 200,000. He goes, what about if we nuke them? We, you know, what if we nuke him? And, and, and Kissinger goes, well, you don't want to be seen as a butcher. And he goes, you know, you're not thinking big enough, Henry. And I'm thinking to myself, oh, my God. You know, it's like um, kill one man, you're a murderer, and kill a million, you're a king, you know. 
But I'll tell you the most, the most haunting video I've ever seen, Dan, of Nixon is when right after the whole thing with Pentagon Papers and, you know, he's in trouble, but he stands in front of a bunch of returning POWs and he says, we got to put a stop to these people who are putting out government secrets. And he gets this long, long, long applause from these people who spent months more time in their misery because this man was hiding the secrets that you exposed. I see that video and every time I see it, I just want to cry because you see how these people, these people who are put into so much misery and death, and even then he's telling them that, knowing that he kept them there longer. Well, you're the first person who's ever recalled to me that having seen that and having reacted to that scene. But let me tell you my reaction to it when I saw it on a clip the next morning. I happened to be in New York um, uh, at the studios of the Today Show about to be interviewed. So before I was interviewed, they showed the scenes of the president addressing the POWs the night before. And it was in a pavilion outside the White House on the Rose Garden or something. Uh, lawn, because uh, there were a lot of them, who had just been released. Their impression was they'd just been released by this man from prison. As you say, they weren't aware, I don't know if they ever became aware, that he had kept them in prison for years uh, by prolonging the war. But here they were, these POWs, who thought they owed their freedom to him and so forth. And he made the statement you said. Yeah. He added, help me, help me to deal with people who give away secrets, you know, meaning me. And I looked at that clip before I was interviewed, and that was one of the rare times in my life when that old cliche, the hair on the back of my neck. I yes. Think, and I thought, he's swearing out a posse against me, a posse of uh, yeah. 100 uh, POWs here. They're going to come <laughs> from Washington up to New York. And I was about to be interviewed at that, and I, I made some reference to it that I, I had a very uncanny feeling about uh, watching that. It was shown on the show, of course. <laughs> I, I just... But well, I felt such, I can't even describe it. Like, like he'd already, you know, he didn't give a damn if these people lived or died when they're over there. And now he's trying to use them after he has abused them in this way, you know, and it was just, it, it was really horrible. I want to talk to you about something that, that uh, an observation that you made, and I'd like you to expand on it a little bit. You were talking about how, and I've always discussed this, and I think it's very key to a lot of things, how um, different levels of power are different paradigms. And when you reach a certain level, the paradigm shifts dramatically. The value systems are different. Uh, you're, you're, you know, once you reach the paradigm where you have the power to, of life and death over people, then it seems like the, the, there's a shift in the thinking. And, and I, I want to play a clip because I, I think this is emblematic of that. And this is a clip of Nixon's view 
of what has just happened now that you've been let go. <laughs> Son of a bitch, who's made a national hero and sung it off in a mistrial, New York Times gets a Pulitzer Prize for stealing documents, for trying to get out of these. What in the name of God have you come to? What in the name of God have we come to? So could you talk about that? And particularly when you were, you were talking about um, uh, having secret and top secret clearances and how that's a different paradigm and you know different view. Let me respond to this clip first uh, for a moment in the background of your earlier clip. When you saw him saying that I had given aid and comfort to the enemy, of course, Nearly everyone would hear that as the definition of treason. Actually, I wasn't charged with treason because in our Constitution, treason is the only felony described in the Constitution, defined in the Constitution, uh, so that it can't be expanded without a constitutional amendment. And it's a very narrow charge. It says, it says, uh, levying war, waging war against the United States or in adhering to its enemies giving them aid and comfort, adhering to its enemies. Now, Chelsea Manning was charged with that in military, actually. Uh, did she adhere, uh, then Bradley Manning, adhere to the uh, Taliban? Did, did I adhere to the Viet Cong? Or to the, no one would think of charging that. But when they hear aid and comfort, which you do if you criticize the government, you probably give aid and comfort to all the critics or enemies of the government. That's true. In public, if you exercise the First Amendment critically or skeptically of official announcement, you can be charged with giving aid and comfort. Right. Opposed to it any any day in the uh, in the Congress, practically, the congressional record or the front page. Anyway, he then went on to say in that same interview, just minutes after the clip you showed, he said, uh, actually, David Frost asked him about the break-in to my former psychoanalyst's office, this burglary done at the, at the orders of the Oval Office. And he said, when the president does it, it's not illegal. Now, that's the, diction, that's the uh, definition of a dictator, actually, you know, beyond the law, beyond the Constitution. Yes, our presidents have acted that way. This one in particular, Donald Trump, but he's not the only one by any means. Uh, since Nixon, and that's what we're uh, what we're challenged now, you know. To well, I I actually think Donald Trump is the frightening natural outcome of constantly rigging a system, which now only I mean you have to be a billionaire or beholden to a bunch of billionaires to get there, and you already, if you're a billionaire, you have the mindset that laws and rules are not for you okay and that's the again that's what that's what i'm trying to get you to address right now is it's almost now overt it's just overt but may i say that is the difference and it is a significant difference on one hand you can say it's not a practically big difference they're doing that anyway but to make it overt can lead to a lot more. For instance, when I say, people will say somehow, we don't have a democracy in a working democracy. In foreign affairs, 
in military affairs, we don't really very much. The secrecy is so effective, the lies are so frequent, it really, there isn't much accountability in foreign affairs. In domestic affairs, there's somewhat more, considerably more, in particular, of course, elections. And, uh, but as you say, the billionaires, like, <laughs> I'm laughing about Trump because he wants to say, he says he has 10 billion, and Mickey, Michael Cohen, I just read his book, says, at the most, 2 billion. Well, 2 billion is a lot, but it's <laughs> he claims. More than I have. <laughs> yeah. So, 1 billion or 2 billion is enough to make you think, and even less than that, the laws don't apply to me in the sense the laws are there for other people, but I can get away with it because I can hire lawyers and I can stall, I can do things. My lawyers will get me out of it. And 99% or more of the time, that's true. Uh, as, as others have said, uh, we do have a two-tier, at the very least, uh, rank of, of law here now. And uh, so what was it Lorena Helmsley said, and it comes out with... Uh, Trump's taxes, she was the hotel owner, she said, taxes are for the little people. And obviously our, our president who paid $750 I know. for two I years know. in a row and nothing for 15 other years. <laughs> uh, it was as, it, it, is he wrong? You, you know, taxes are for the little people. He, right, that's why he acts on. But when you come out openly and say, as he essentially has said, I can do whatever I want. The Constitution, yeah. the Constitution, he says, which let me guess, he has never read a word of in his entire life. But his, the Constitution, he says, gives me, as president, the right to do whatever I want. And you know, you don't have to be, have studied it lately to know, wait a minute, that's not what the Constitution. Well, here's the thing, is the Constitution doesn't, you know, on paper, it says it doesn't, but if you don't have a judicial system or a Supreme Court that's willing to get behind that, uh, just based on the rule of law alone, then we're in deep trouble. And we've already seen that we have problems in, in, in the judicial system from the, from the local on up. We're, we're going to run out of time. And before we do that, it's very important to me, Dan, that you talk about what you think people should be doing right now and what you think uh, the future holds for Assange and... Yeah, okay. As I said at the very beginning, uh, I would have said earlier that we were shouting into the wind with regard to Assange and that he was, he had no prospect other than something like solitary confinement in the rest of his life, whether in Britain or America, and he preferred Britain, uh, bad as it is, to what he would get in America. And that's all. That is, there is light on that prospect now. There, he should get out, and there is a real prospect that he will get out, and that's new. Uh, <clears throat> and that uh, shows the remaining shards, the definitely remaining democracy. For people, leftists, let's say, who want to say, they're all right, there's no real democracy in this country. It's an, it is an oligarchy. That's, there's no... Yeah. Technical, uh, realistic term, but there's no democracy at all. Wait till four more years of Trump, then I think you'll know what fascism is. Terrifying, means. it's different, it's different. Yeah, and as you say, it starts by being more overt about the flaws in our democracy right now and making them, you know, enshrining them, but it goes well beyond that. 
So I would say we are facing right now a real crisis. Democracy is in great danger in a way that I don't think I've ever seen it. By the way, I think that Richard Cheney had the same point of view about you know being above the law and so forth, wanting to change our government. But he was vice president. And although he pretty much controlled George Bush, it wasn't quite the same. He, he did actually, along with Powell and everybody else in the government, and Bush at the head of it, did start a fire in the Middle East by invading Iraq that has led, a recent report shows, to 37 million refugees. 37 yeah. million refugees. Yeah. And uh, so the, the consequences of this silence you know, and cowardice and refusal to take a risk of one's job. That's what it comes down to. Um, when you said there are people who are outside the government and they change when they get, even though they're rather uh, above the law, billionaires, but then they get into the government, they like the job. If they're secretary of, uh, look, uh, Tillerson was uh, president of Exxon, uh, you know, yeah. retired, uh, but as secretary of state, um, he gets in, but showing our priorities, by the way, about observing the Paris Accords to put the president of Exxon that had been lying to the public for 30 years about the climate problem and put him in charge of the secretary of state. Well, definitely business goes above the rule of law, you know, the business goes above the rule of law. It's a job. So he stayed in for a while. He, he did indeed in private called the president in front of other people a fucking moron. And amazingly enough, I couldn't understand it. After I was reported and he didn't deny it, uh, he stayed in for some time. I, I'm not clear why. But anyway. Wait, Dan, we're oh. out of time. Okay. We're out of time, unfortunately. Oh, we're going to have to continue this conversation some other time. But I want to end with your exhortation to people uh, that comes at the end of this film. I think it's really a beautiful thing. And uh, exactly what you had in mind, but I know what I have in mind about what to tell them. There go ahead, then. Never mind. Activity in America. Nothing in terms of keeping ballot lines for the Green Party on uh, in, some, uh, in swing states. There is nothing that excuses progressives, progressives or activists or liberals from doing anything other than addressing with their highest priority defeating Donald Trump uh, in the next three weeks in such a clear-cut way that his clear-cut contestation of that will not, will not obtain and he can get out of office. And that means doing everything possible to swell the vote for Joe Biden in swing states. And I'm saying that to federal progressives who have deep, many criticisms of Joe Biden, but, but they're- Yeah, you gotta hold your nose and vote.